You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and its associated websites, One Step Off the Grid and the EV-focused The Driven and joining me as usual is ITK Principal David Leach. David, I uh, trust you are well. Yes, Giles, I'm, I'm well, uh, and it's great to be uh, have, have a great guest today and such a lot to talk about, isn't there, really, as ever in the electricity and energy sphere. Absolutely, yes, and uh, a big welcome to Christian Zua from the Clean Energy Council. Christian, um, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Giles. Look, um, we're going to be talking about a bunch of different things. There's a lot of um, initiatives on connection reform and a whole bunch of other stuff going on um, with the Clean Energy Council and its work with the Australian Energy Market Operator. Later on this, this podcast, we'll get onto the latest iteration of the New South Wales roadmap and the um, and the messages coming out from Energy Co and from the political leadership. And there's a few other things to talk about, such as price rises and consumer bills. But Christian, let's get onto this Connections Reform Initiative and let's start maybe by just painting the picture of what the problem is. I mean, I guess we're all kind of aware of some of the delays that there's been in connecting and in commissioning. We've seen some projects be built and basically sort of sit there idle for six months, a year, some even longer. Um, we've heard about um, all the problems that are associated with that, the increased costs, the missed revenue, contractors falling over because of it. What's the worst story that you've heard? I mean, you probably, you probably can't even name a project, but just sort of describe the situation and what happened and, and, and why you guys have been working for 18 months to fix it. Indeed. Well, it's actually a bit longer than 18 months. I think I think Kane and uh, some of the senior people uh, at AMO kicked off the process probably close to almost close to three years ago now. Um, yeah, I mean, look, I, I guess underpinning all of the, the issues around connection really stem from the fact that just the sheer volume of, of, of new generation and storage assets that we've got connecting now uh, you know, as we rapidly, you know, transition uh, towards uh, towards 100% renewables, uh, is really, you know, down to the fact that the, the connection frameworks were never designed for that volume uh, of, of of new connections. It was designed to connect maybe, you know, one large thermal asset every every three or four or five years. You know, not the not the gigawatts of capacity that we're that we're currently needing to uh, to connect. So, you know, it, it really, uh, I think, it just boils down to you know that that the mismatch of that regulatory, um, you know, and technical framework with with the realities um, around us That's i mean is, is, yeah. that a lack of, is that a lack of resources or is it because the modeling has become so complex um because there's so much being added to the grid and people are not really too sure what's going to happen if this is connected here or or, or wherever or is it a mixture of yeah. both oh look it's everything is i mean like certainly the resourcing thing i i i, I can't speak for amo uh, and the nsps but uh, certainly the stories you hear is it is it's difficult to source uh source um, the, the the right people, uh, you know, to the right connection engineers to to do the, the sheer volume of studies that, that need to, to be done. I mean, labour shortfalls are, and supply chain issues are, are across the board, are biting across the board, and that includes in, in connection. But yeah, I mean, to your second point, yes, things are also just a lot more complex. Mm. You know, the system is changing so quickly, you know, as we move from a predominantly synchronous thermal, you know, based um, system to one which is now what we call non-synchronous, mm. um, you know, with increasing degree 
degrees of variability and, and new technologies you know coming coming in like wind sorry and solar. christian just let's step back there mm. and keep the terminology uh, <laughs> let's sorry. develop it could you ex just explain for me yep. what the difference between synchronous and asynchronous is very briefly 100%. Yeah, look, sorry about that. I, I, I get lost a bit. <laughs> um, so look, a, a synchronous generator is really the type of the main type of generation that we've had connected in the NEM uh, since since the get go. So you know, think coal uh, or gas generators, and they're called synchronous because they're actually um, physically synchronized to the power system. There is an electromechanical link between the spinning metal mass of the generator of the turbine and uh, the, the the power system itself. So um, so so each generator is synchronized to the system and you know quite amazingly wonderfully they're also sort of synchronized to each other so if you disturb one generator in queensland uh instantaneously another generator in south australia will, will kind of respond so the whole system spins as sort of as one together um non-synchronous or asynchronous generation is, is typically wind and solar has been connected as, as non-synchronous are non-synchronous and they're basically instead of being electromechanically coupled uh, those forms of generation are connected via power system electronics so it's all controlled by software um, at, at its at its at its core rather than having that kind of physical link and, and that difference gives rise to a whole number of um, of, of, of different sort of performances uh, or different characteristics across the two technologies Okay, um, so let's go and um, look at some of the reforms that you guys have um, proposed. And I guess the two, well, there's a couple of things that sort of leapt out at me. One was the amount of modelling that needs to be done and the clarity over what is the responsibility of the developer or the projects or developer to, to actually sort of deliver. And I think the second thing that sort of occurred to me or struck out at me from the, um, from the initiative that um, was released today was the fact that the onus of proof of a potential problem must now go back to the network operator or, or, or the network owner. And that seems to be significant to me because we've seen some cases where we've had um, wind and solar projects, the battery projects sort of obliged to sort of add you know, extra equipment, things like harmonic filters or synchronous condensers or, or, or whatever it might be, and sort of complaining afterwards, well, why do we have to do that? Because it wasn't really necessary. So can you just maybe outline some of those? Um, mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Look, certainly, and I mean, to, to that to that question about um, modelling, it, it, it's true in the uh, in in the NEM power system, there there is an enormous amount of modelling, um, which is you know sort of computer simulations of how generation needs to behave. Um, um, connecting generators need to already go through um, a lot. Uh, of, of, of those modeling processes and you know they take time uh, and if they occur in uh, the point in the connection process after you've locked in your contracts and uh, and reach final investment decision they can really have a huge impact because they're delaying uh, the project's ability to you know to to get to earning revenue um, so yeah but look to that question about the the reversal of the onus of proof the the idea really here is to say um as a generator connects and it moves towards what's called um finalization of its connection agreement which is really a kind of a milestone um a milestone in the whole connection process um as it moves um towards to, towards that point it, it has to go it has to undertake a lot of modeling exercises um to demonstrate that it's going to be able to connect to the system and operate stably uh, and meet all of the technical requirements that are um, imposed on those generators in the in the rules so there's quite an extensive modeling process that you've got to go through um, to, to demonstrate that you're going to be compliant with those technical standards uh, in the rules now what has been happening is that 
you would go through these modeling exercises, you'd get everything locked down, you'd execute your contracts, you get all your financials lined up, you'd probably start lining up EPC, uh, uh, you, people to build the asset. Um, you know, that would all, all, all get lined up. Um, then you'd go into a process called registration and it's at registration where you get into more detailed design and you have to start calibrating that, uh, that more detailed design against the original models uh, that, that you had. And what they were finding was um, because of the lack of clarity in the rules about what connecting generators can be asked to do, um, very tiny deviations between the model, the originally modeled plant capability and then what they are actually able to deliver um, you know as identified in the in the detailed design even tiny deviations was causing those assets to have to reopen you know uh, large portions or if not all of their of their technical standards and, and go through a very extensive modeling process so that was imposing huge delays on uh, on, on a number of projects um, to, to, to get through so the idea is now under the new arrangements what we're proposing is that um, if they're um, basically the generator as it is registered, we'll do a sort of a self-assessment and we'll say, look, we've made these minor changes, but we think uh, we're generally compliant here uh, across most of the board and they'll provide reasoning and evidence as to, as to why. And then if the network and AEMO disagree, they simply have to provide proof. They have to provide evidence that, that they now face, a, I suppose, a, a burden of proof, a, an onus of proof to demonstrate that there is in fact an issue. And if they can prove that, um, then it's on the generator uh, or potentially the network business to find um, find a solution so that's sort of at its core what um what that reversal of onus of proof uh, entails and 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 the other one sorry david i'm going to one more question before letting you go um there also seems to be paving the way for battery storage to be added to existing wind and solar assets because one of the ironies mm. of things we've had lots of wind and solar things built and people say oh geez I'd like to add storage now but it's been a real headache yeah. because of the various connection sort of protocols what's going to change there yeah, yeah. I mean, that's another another sort of related part of the of the connection reform initiative that we've been looking at. Um, and yeah, this we, we call it retrofitting of a best a battery energy system, energy storage system behind an existing connection point. You, you. The particular problem arises where you've got, say, an older legacy wind farm, like a, uh, say, a ten-year-old wind farm that was connected uh, using simpler models. Um, uh, back, you know, back in the day, uh, and also potentially had lower levels of, of capability because they connected at a time when the rules required lower levels of capability. So 10 years later, you know, you've got space, you want to put a, a battery uh, behind that existing connection point, which makes sense, you know, it's it's, it's scale efficient, um, you know, it brings more storage to the system, which which we need. But the problem is you, when you, what developers were finding is they would look to put that battery in, uh, and what it would mean is the, the GPS of the old wind farm, the 10 year old wind farm would also then be opened up, right? Because your GPS are tied to the connection point. So putting in the new battery meant that you had to then open up the generated performance standards of the legacy asset. Um, now that causes a lot of concern um, for developers because once you have to start opening up the GPS of a legacy asset, you're potentially on the hook again to do uh, an enormous amount of modeling. Uh, and potentially you've even got to install additional equipment. Um, and the reason that, that could happen is because uh, of a clause called 539, <laughs> rules clause 539, which basically says that um, you can, when you go through this process, 
uh, you can be bumped up to much higher levels of capability um, and and or at least the interpretation of it says that and that can just impose enormous cost uh, again on on the generator and it's actually meant that in many cases generators have just said no I won't I won't even bother <laughs> to do the retrofitting because they're, they're so they're so concerned about the potential for that 539 uh, to, to be applied I might add that you know Amos doing a lot to, to try to fix that issue and we're working with them to to try to to try to address it so I think you know while those concerns were legitimate uh, I, I think we are finding a way forward um, but certainly that has that that is the way it has been and, it, and it's created a real uh, some some serious issues so Christian I'm because the modeling and connection is important uh, despite the fact that it's it's very propeller head I do want to spend another <laughs> a, a minute uh, briefly discussing a couple of points yep. in, in your mind uh, firstly uh, the big question, I suppose, is what do you see as the potential to cut the average? I think it takes a, basically a year, more or less, on average of, of studies, doesn't it, really? Uh, uh, and stuff like related uh, in the connection process. So one to two years and, and two or three rounds of studies uh, before you end up being connected. It can. Uh, there are there are some there are some horror stories of even longer timeframes. Um, I, I think the 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 issue though about when you have to do those studies and when you have to do the the remodeling work, um, you know, it's nobody wants to be delayed. Sorry, everybody wants to move towards connection agreement and finalization of GPS as, as quickly as possible. Um, but really, the major problems start to bind if you are delayed once you've hit your connection agreement once you've closed your finances once perhaps you've started you've engaged your, your epc to build the asset um if it's at that point you get kicked into having to do a whole bunch of modeling um, it, it, it costs that, you a lot of when, money that's when it costs you yeah that, that's where you're, you're on the hook right you, you've committed to your finances yep, yep so christian what do you think you know what in your mind uh what does success look like uh here yeah. how how much you know what's what's the potential upside well, I mean, it's, you know, ideally, obviously, uh, we, we, we move or uh, projects are able to move through that registration, um, you know, much, much faster uh, than they probably. Now, I, I can't give you an exact time frame of what would be desirable because it will still depend on the specifics of each project. But certainly we'd be a success would look like moving through that registration process um, well, with, yeah, with, less re with less <laughs> yeah. revision, certainly. And, and to th that end, I just want to ask two more questions. Firstly, one is a real propeller head question that you'll have to try and answer generally, which is, what is the state of the software? I have to imagine that the PSCAD mm -hmm. model has improved across the NEM to the point now where, where whatever difficulties it had and, and individual generators might have had different outcomes to the AEMO's version of it, Surely we're getting to a point now where we all know the drill and the routine and, and these bits and pieces are, are you know, that, so that there are less likely to be issues irrespective of any reform process. Uh, I mean, uh, you're getting to the very edge of my propeller headism, I suppose. Um, but yeah, look, uh, certainly, you know, uh, uh, th there is a big difference between what are the what are called PSSE or, or RMS models and the newer uh, EMT or PSCAD models. Um, PSCAD models are far more uh, compu uh, uh, computationally intensive. Uh, they are also high, much more uh, granular, more, more accurate, I suppose, in modeling some of the really uh, rapid interactions that can occur uh, in the power system. So, so 
certainly if you talk to NSPs and AMO and, and probably a good portion of uh, developers, they'll agree that some degree of PSCAD studies are, are necessary. Um, now, yes, they are they are innately more time consuming than some of the earlier types of modeling. But I, I think that as the industry develops and gains more expertise and as AMO and NSPs develop and gain more expertise, uh, my understanding is that those modeling exercises are getting faster. But I mean, the key, the, the other element to it is just how much modeling is being required. So some of the horror stories, again, uh, that, that, I, that I hear from some of our members are uh, being asked to go through huge numbers of modeling exercises to test for scenarios that sit, sit sort of far out on the edge case. Yes, yeah, edge, edge really conditions. That's, exactly. that's, that's yeah. because there's no responsibility and it's easy to impose another condition than take a risk, uh, uh, basically. Now, I just because we do have to move this along, I also want to ask, just last one on this topic, about renewable energy zones and the batch mm. process. Mm. Uh, and I guess uh, what you think uh, about the potential for this to make things either better or worse. Yeah, I think I think we are going to have to have some form of batching at, at some point in in the NEM. It's been difficult to uh, difficult to develop from a regulatory and a commercial sense. Um, you know, so basically, the idea of a batch is um, when you have, say, a renewable energy zone, and you've got ten or, or some say some number of um, of non-synchronous generators wanting to connect. The fastest way to connect them is to do that in a coordinated manner, right? So you basically um, set all of their technical responses uh, at once and in coordination with each other. So they they connect as a batch. Um, it, it is probably what we are going to have to do. We are, there have been difficulties in terms of how you might translate that concept. Um, firstly, how you do it technically, how many rounds of modeling and model integration you have to go through. Um, but then there's also, it, it's complex from a commercial sense. Um, you know, what obligations do you put on a party once they've bought into a batch? You know, is it a use it or lose it type provision? Um, what happens if someone decides they no longer want to be in the batch? You know, how, how do they exit and what does that mean for the other parties who, who choose to remain? Um, it's actually my understanding is is the regulatory development of batches has actually been paused for a little while. I believe it's happening back end of this year. It's going to kick off again. But, um, you know, I think we are going to have to do it. And you've seen, you know, the, some, some preliminary versions of it being yep. done in, in yep. New South Wales. Yep, Christian. And so the fact that it's paused is pretty typical of everything that seems to happen uh, in the system. Uh, and perhaps <laughs> it's time to move on to a couple of other topics. Um I guess one of the things that I've got a number of uh, bees in my bonnet at the moment, and one of them is around the uh, capacity investment scheme, this kind of vague thing where which Chris Bowen has announced and, and sounded terrific when he announced it, but I'm not sure that it amounts to anything more than a backing up of state schemes, which is kind of not, I was hoping that we would see a more general thing uh, like a renewable energy target or an LTESA at a national level where everyone could just bid in their project and uh, get a capacity credit and get some sort of support and we could get on with building some stuff. But but what are your thoughts? Yeah, look, I mean, there's, first, first of all, there's not a lot of detail out there um, on exactly what the capacity investment scheme is and I, I won't speculate. I think we can only go on what, what we know. Um, in terms of the extent to which it interacts with the various state schemes, I think they were, as I recall, they were always, the, the federal department was always pretty um, straight up from the beginning that um, the New South Wales LTESA mechanism would sort of be, would be, 
well, yeah, either separate, but it, now it seems like they're sort of using it to, to implement parts of it. So it, it, I'm, it, it's sort of a little unclear how that's going to work. I believe it will be separate. Um, it, it will be its own mechanism in South Australia and Victoria. I don't think there'll be an interaction with the, as I understand it, with the, with the, with the, the schemes there. But again, we don't really sort of know. Um, we also have a reasonable indication, if I recall what the uh, original communique and, and, and press release, which is sort of what we've got to go on, said that it, it seems like it'll follow some sort of underwriting mechanism similar to what the Generation Altezas in New South Wales look like. Um, so rather than being a straight sort of CFD type approach, uh, it, it, I think my, my, my gut says it'll be some sort of, a, some sort of an option type, um, type, type contract. Um, yeah, I mean, our original sort of the original positioning that, that we'd actually taken with the uh, with you know before the announcement was made last December was actually to sort of look at some sort of a storage target mechanism, so something like a, a RET for for storage. Um, you know, sort of those those certificate mechanisms are, you know, well we've seen the RET; it's a very effective mechanism. And, and equally, Christian, you could have like a tax incentive like they have in the United <laughs> States. I think the the tax the United States investment tax credit, not not the new one, which is super good but even the old style one uh you know was very successful that's that's just what i would generally say and 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 you could the, the government could adjust it or have a sunset or whatever but if you got the, that credit under that scheme you had certainty in a way you could go but any anyhow i, I guess there are a lot of schemes I think, yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of, a huge amount of opportunity with the capacity investment scheme, you know, so one of the other areas that we're looking at at the, at the Clean Energy Council is, you know, some of the other forms of long duration energy storage, um, you know, so so storage forms other than lithium ion and, um, and, uh, and, and pumped hydro, which are the two sort of dominant, I guess, forms at the moment. And, uh, you know, a lot of these technologies have huge promise, you know, they, they have, um, that they can be located much more flexibly, you know, they can provide a lot of additional sort of services. Um, but, you know, they're higher up the, the, the or is it lower down or higher up the maturity curve, right? So a mechanism like the capacity investment scheme, if it's designed well, can actually do a lot to sort of bring on these other forms of, of, of energy storage, which will really help us get to that kind of portfolio approach that we really need to follow when it comes to, when it comes to energy storage. We kind of need all types in the mix. And a direct sort of mechanism like the CIS, you know, if designed well, I think can do a lot to, to really accelerate that, um, that kind of process. Well, I'm fascinated to learn exactly what sort of um, other forms of long duration mm. storage you're talking about. But we're just going to take a break and we'll be back with part two in a few moments. Powered by All Energy Australia, the New South Wales Clean Energy event, Energy Next, returns to the International Convention Centre in Darling Harbour on July 18 and 19. This free-to-attend exhibition and conference is a must for industry suppliers and experts and those involved in the renewable energy and energy storage sectors. Featuring leading international and national brands such as Schneider Electric, Investment New South Wales, 5B and more, you can't afford to miss this free event. Register now for Energy Next 2023, July 18 and 19 at the International Convention Centre, Darling Harbour, Sydney. We're back with part two of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm here with David Leach and Christian Zur from the Clean Energy Council. Um, Christian, I've got two-fold questions on the other forms of long-duration storage. The first one is about whether the Altessas as designed are actually going to be able to support pumped hydro. We've seen in New South Wales that um, an eight-hour battery won the first round of storage and 
kind of like a um, an admission that maybe this is going to have to be redesigned or maybe it's going to have to require some sort of clean energy finance type um, institution such as the Energy Security Corp to to support pumped hydro. So I'm wondering whether you can comment on that and, and maybe you can help identify what the other mysterious forms of long duration storage are. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking possibly compressed air, I'm maybe thinking finally solar thermal after all these, um, after at least a decade. Is that what you're talking about or is there something else? Yeah, no, I'll, I'll talk at talk at no end about alternative forms of long duration energy storage. You'll have to stop me. Um, but look, on on the first point um, to pumped hydro, I mean, it was the original intention. Uh, I, I believe it's even in the act that the long duration energy storage LTEs were, were, were sort of designed to support um, pumped hydro, and we haven't yet seen that eventuate. Um, I think to your point, Giles, about the need for uh, potentially other means of support for long uh, for, for pumped uh, pumped hydro is is probably on the money um, pardon the pun because you know th these these are big high capitally you know, capital intensive assets they've got very long lead times um, you know th there's not a huge number of locations where you can build them so they are they are just you know um, complex assets to build and they have a very different risk profile to to assets like excuse me christian i've just had a telegram from um andrew blakers at anu telling me there are many many locations and uh, <laughs> he'd like you to retract that comment but anyway on you go <laughs> no look there are look i i i should as you can tell relative to some of the other forms of of, of storage uh, i think i think pumped hydro you know, is constrained, and, and it also depends on the scale. I mean, you know, for big projects, um, you know, there's only so many you can go. But yeah, it's true for smaller ones. Um, you know, we, we are seeing some really innovative approaches being being taken. Don't get me wrong; I love pumped hydro. I think it's great. It's got its place in the uh, in the in the portfolio of storage. But yeah, like to that point, I, I think given that given that the, you know, the capital in, intensity of, of these projects, you probably are going to need some other form of support. Yeah. Well, that, uh, I mean, that seems yeah. pretty clear because even in South yeah. Australia, we had six shortlisted pumped hydro projects and um, and they all sort of disappeared. I mean, Andrew Blakers would probably sort of offer the opinion that um, none of them had um, a big enough height between the two reservoirs and maybe that was the issue. But look, let's move on from there. I'm fascinated to hear, um, you've got two minutes to tell us about these other <laughs> long duration storage tech Technologies. I'll talk very, very quickly. Look, I mean, there, there, there's there's really no end to that list. Uh, right now, there's a huge number of, of technologies. So what we're doing right now, I suppose, is, is going through through some of those and just trying to trying to whittle down those which are um, kind of ha have pilot projects and which we think you know uh, have have some sort of potential to be applied in the Australian context. Um, I mean, for me, and, and there are many others, but for me, the three really interesting ones are um, compressed air, um, some of the forms of phase change thermal storage uh, and vanadium redox. So um, with compressed air, it is just that. You basically pump uh, air into an underground cavern. We've got an example of this project being built by Hydrostore uh, in Broken Hill. Um, you know, you can potentially get some very long uh, durations out of that. Uh, and the mechanism that's being used, uh, the actual technology being used in, in, in Broken Hill is, is a very interesting one. Um, the phase change thermal, uh, you may have heard of it as a project um, uh, being run in, I think it's South Australia by MGA Thermal. Uh, it's a really interesting um, technology that um, effectively has 
beads of metal kept within a matrix, uh, and it, it, the metal is, is is made molten, and then as it shifts phases back to uh, to to solid, it, it, it emits heat. So you can use that, you know, that that that's that thermal heat to run a turbine. Oh dear, I feel, I feel the energy technology is going to run right away from me now when we've got beads of metal in a matrix. <laughs> yeah. uh, look, it's it's a big heat a big heat brick. You know, I mean, I guess is the simple simplest way. That's better. With 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 all respect to uh, to to the guys at MJ Thermal, it is, it is quite a quite a complex tech. But I mean, the the one that really you know also really interests me is is the vanadium redox. Um, now this is actually an Australian invention. It was invented. I can't, I can't remember her name, but a, a, a professor out of UNSW, I think, um, established this, developed this technology in, in the 80s, and it's it, it uses two liquids, a negative and a positive liquid, in in a sense, and passes those two liquids uh, past each other uh, through a membrane, and and from that you get a you get a power flow. Um, it's a really interesting technology because I think it's very scalable. Um, you you break that nexus between how much power you produce and then and how much energy you can have. Because if you want more energy, you just make the tank two or three or four times uh, the size, and you can get some very, in theory, some very very long duration, um, you know, store energy storage out of that. So those are the three techs that we're kind of looking at. Um, this is a piece of work that's just kicking off now. We're kind of going to look at all the different technical variables of, of the of the technologies, but then also really trying to figure out how they might play in the NEM uh, as the power system moves to higher and higher levels of of, uh, of renewable penetration. Giles, uh, I, I, I'd also mention process heat store existing process heat uh, storage is using um, using some some medium is is another possibility. But Giles, I just wanted to ask you: we we had another big announcement today on from New South Wales government on the infrastructure objectives report. How did you find that? Well, it was pretty bizarre, actually. Some of the journalists got invited to this briefing um, we had on Wednesday, and it was kind of all off the record on background and things like that. And um, we didn't actually have access to the whole report, just sort of certain graphs and certain documents and a sort of a um, an on-the-record statement from the minister, but we've heard from sort of people on, on background. And it looked like another horror story. Delays, cost overruns, it's going to be really hard, and um, we can't comment about the coal-fired power stations, but, geez, we're not going to let the lights go out and stuff like that. And I was just going, oh, shit, what's going on here, you know? Um, more bad news. But picking up the actual thing, the actual real document today and actually going, oh, that's not a bad story. Yes, sure, there are some delays. There's a cost overrun in one um, renewable energy zone and there's a big cost decrease in another one. But, um, in fact, I think the cost decrease probably outweighs the cost increase. Um, and there's actually a blueprint similar to the um, integrated system plan of how New South Wales can cope with all its coal generators had to quit by 2030 rather than the central scenario which assumes that Mount Piper continues on to 2039 which I think if we're taking climate targets And Charles, did you read the sentence in that report that said in that all the coal plants closed by 2030 electricity prices to consumers would actually be lower than in the current scenario did you read that? I did actually read that, and you would have thought that a a, a minister in in a moment um, when we're actually hearing about sort of price rises would actually sort of seize on that and go, well, this is an extra reason to go even quicker. Um, but that's kind of not the message that we've got. So I'm kind of confused about where the New South Wales government sort of sits on this. Um, um, but yeah, I mean, look, the messaging 
from all the regulatory authorities and from everyone in the industry is the quicker we get out of coal and the quicker we get wind and solar and storage in there, the, the lower the prices will be. We just kind of have this sort of this big task of how do we get enough capacity built? How do we get enough transmission built? How do we get this connection processes um, uh, accelerated? So it was um, it was an interesting um, it, it was. It, it was very interesting to sort of, yeah, to see to see the contrast. I'm not too sure what else you thought about the um, the the, uh, the document, or maybe even what Christian thought. Well, I think they could have given more prominence to the actual price outcome modelling and the uh, and uh, that very sentence. You know, you could have had a big. The way the report was written, it was like two twenty thirty all coal plants close is just a kind of scenario. This is what we do if that happened, as a, as opposed to let's have some policy to actually have that scenario happen because it's going to be the best outcome for New South Wales consumers. And, and I myself would have been enthusiastic to have seen a big chapter and a headline uh, saying all of those things. But uh, I'll turn it over to Christian. Uh, what 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 are your thoughts? Oh well, I I didn't get a pre-briefing, uh, guys. So I, <laughs> I've I've been trying to skim read the doco uh, in in between doing uh, a number of briefings today. But I mean, so I can't sort of speak to it in detail. But I mean, I think the what New South Wales has done really well uh, in in throughout the entire roadmap, I think, is to really recognise the importance of um, bringing forward transmission and generation and storage investments, bringing forward in time. And so they're really broken from the dominant kind of way of. Uh, the, the, the regulatory bodies have thought about investment, you know, over time, which is, you know, it has to be just in time. You know, you, 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 don't, you don't move a, a second too soon. And I think the New South Wales approach, by and large, is, has moved past that. And I think they're recognising the importance of, of getting ahead of these, coal, of these coal closures and bringing on a coordinated approach or, sorry, coordinating, you know, storage. But you can't. This is what we've learnt out of it in, in, because the market consists of participants who all after further their own interests so what happened when the New South Wales plan was announced and then the ISP followed it along uh, with the step change, Origin brought forward its coal closure, uh, uh, you know, which still created the instability in the market. And it's perfectly open and created a lot of money-making opportunities uh, for the whole coal industry, which we saw most dramatically for that and other reasons last year. And, and so my point is you really need some game theory uh, and you need to set your mind on a policy and then really go for it hard, at least in, 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 in my opinion. Uh, the other thing I thought that was missing from the infrastructure document was really how the um, thing I've been on about, which is the planning within the REZs, the environmental planning. And we've talked a lot about connection studies today, but they're only two years out of a seven year process for, a, for a, like a wind farm. Um, uh, there's so much other stuff that has to go on around the, that, that I think could, we could do a lot better and, and something that the New South Wales Energy Minister could actually, Penny Sharp, instead of trying to run the Labor Party line, uh, uh, you know, which is let's keep a roaring open, uh, uh, that's the more and more the line, you know, I'd like to see a bit more commitment to getting things done and just more financial support for pumped hydro. I mean, <laughs> there's a lot of alternatives to pumped hydro out there from home batteries to more big batteries uh, to more interstate transmission. There's a lot of different ways we, we could do it. Mm. Uh, Christian, I'm just interested, or David, actually, um, talking about sort of grid reform and sort of grid access, which is really sort of the underpinning of the renewable energy zone. It's sort of um, 
know, the idea is to sort of create capacity and then get um, projects to bid into it so they can actually sort of be have a guaranteed access to the grid and guaranteed output for their um, energy production. Um, this week, in the last week, we've seen the axing basically of the Energy Security Board as a policy setter. Um, they will remain, or well, the heads of the various agencies, the AMC, the AEMO, um, AER, plus the competition commissioner um, representative um, will advise the um, the ministers. Um, David or Christian, who wants to go first? Is this a good thing? Well, I'll just repeat very briefly what I've said. If you look at this in comparison to a private sector model, you have the governments, which are the board, and then normally you have management, right? Uh, now, the management isn't a company, or it can be a company, but typically there's a person who is the CEO, the energy czar, if you like, of the whole thing, and he has a team that reports to him, and he has responsibility for achieving uh, various objectives. Uh, at the moment, that structure is still lacking. We have AEMO and AER and, uh, and uh, the AMC, which all have different functions and different personalities, and I still think myself there's not clear enough lines of management responsibility with targets being set, KPIs, uh, and reporting on how they've been achieved. Um, I mean, from, from from my perspective, I mean, we have a new acronym now. We, we, we have the EAP, I think they're going to be called. Um, but when you look at you know, and, and, and noting that the actual structure of the ESB is, is still, um, you know, uh, being developed. We, sorry, ESB, the EAP is being developed. We don't quite know what they're going to do. From, from a first pass, it doesn't look all that different. Um, so, you know, one of the key things is that the, um, the so-called 90F rulemaking power, uh, which actually allows the e, well, ESB, now EAP, um, to, to lodge a rule change request directly, or sorry, to make changes to the rules directly, um, is still appears still to be in place. And that, that's really kind of the, the hook, <laughs> in a sense, that makes the, or made the ESB what, what it was. And that still seems to be in place. So I, I'm not sure just how much of a change will be. Certainly, we aren't understand that for, for, for the key project that the, one of the key projects that the ESP has been running access reform or transmission access reform we understand that will continue um, as it has um, there doesn't seem to be any sort of any any, any change there uh, at, at least until the ESP sort of gets its next no there's stage. no change transmission still takes forever to get developed <laughs> Um, Christian, before we sort of fill up, um, finish up with the um, talk about some discussion about energy prices and the, the default market offering, um, is there anything else that you'd wanted to say um, from your list of things? I mean, um, I'm a bit fascinated by what you were sort of ref your reference in, in your notes, the sort of the southwest um, part of the REZ. Um, if there's something to be um, sort of, or if this is sort of, you know, last opportunity yeah. to sort of bring some <laughs> of the other, other points. Yeah, look, I mean, I think the Southwest um, Res is is really interesting because it's it shows a, uh, it's in the Southwest Res in New South Wales. It, it's it's quite a different approach um, that New South Wales has taken there to, uh, to to the development, certainly of the Central West Arana Res. Um, and it's one we're watching with a degree of interest because basically what New South Wales has done with the Southwest Res is they've taken a part of the shared transmission network, uh, in this case the assets that make up Project Energy Connect, and they've effectively sort of turned 
turned off uh, open access. They've effectively kind of um, said, well, th th this is the volume of generation that is allowed to connect to this, this you know, uh, otherwise sort of part of the shared transmission network. They haven't actually built any 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 new transmission. And for me, I think that that's really interesting. It's something we're watching quite closely because um, I think it has implications for how some of the other major transmission projects uh, are, are treated as they as they reach um, maturity um, or as they as they're sort of energized. Um, I think there is um, some possibility that we might see similar limitations on on uh, on open access being imposed on some of these assets. And I'm thinking particularly about, say, VNI West, um, where state governments are looking to maximise kind of interregional transfer, uh, and as such, they they kind of shut down the ability for generators to connect to that that part of the transmission system, which you know. <laughs> we, we we want to get more generation connected, you know. So 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 those sorts of developments. Well, are, that, yeah, that, that is really interesting, and, and it did actually strike strike me when I was actually looking at the declaration of the southwest zone, and I was looking at that and just noting that they were sort of saying, yes, if you don't actually bid in um, to the auctions, then you're not going to be allowed to build. And mm -hmm. yet we seem to be at a point now, um, underpinned by the latest assessment by the Energy Co. New South Wales government, where we actually need more wind and solar generation not less and i'm just yeah so it's and, and, and five and five gigawatts uh, a year basically year, to be right. declared over the next four years and i'm going to ask you christian first and then giles christian if i asked you how likely that is out, out, out <laughs> as a score out of 10 where 10 mm -hmm. says yes we'll do it and one says i don't think we'll do it in no chance what, what would your score be Look at the moment, uh, it would be it would be somewhere under under five. If, if I'm honest, I, I think there are still a number of impediments to actually hitting those volumes. I, I think the connection process, like I sort of started with, is certainly um, a, a lot better than it was. Uh, and you know, uh, so so that won't be, be be the impediment. I think the issues are firstly we're running out of, of parts of the system to connect generation we need to we need to get better at connecting generators not just in the reses but in all the other parts of the system we need to build more transmission <laughs> so there's actually somewhere you know for, for for the generators to go um you know and we need to really accelerate the frameworks necessary to transition to a fully non-synchronous system you know we need to we need to um, really step up what needs to be done to fix the system strength frameworks which is going to be one of the key things that yeah. we need to inverter based system in my language and and giles if you had to score it out of 10 what would you say well i'm getting all depressed now because christian <laughs> come up with that less than five and he knows more than me so um look i'm still the happy optimist saying look we must do it we've got to do it surely we, surely we can do it um but uh, i do get worried about um i'm not gonna put a number on it david but uh, i wish we can get there and i hope we can get there and i would like to see more governments saying yes we bloody well will get there and we'll make sure it happens and Giles, we, we do have to mention the price increases, although I'm not sure what value I can add other than to point out that anyone who listens to this podcast and doesn't understand that ha having, a, having a solar panels and a battery uh, for yourself is, is the way to uh, not worry about it. But, you know, the funniest piece of news I saw this week or amusing to the cynic in me, and I'm, I'm sure it's too cynical, is to see that the guy <laughs> that's been running uh, Snowy Hydro 2 uh, has been promoted to being in charge of Queensland uh, um, uh, pumped hydro now. Now, you know, uh, I, I presume he's learned a lot from his experience, but it does seem like the cricket team, it's a lot harder to get out of it uh, than it is to get into it. Well, he might not be tunnelling with Florence, that's for sure, in his um, in, in his new job. with um, I, I, I suspect that the task at the Barumba and um, the Burdekin pumped hydro projects um, in Queensland, if they do go ahead, will be... Um, a lot simpler 
and Snowy Hydro. It was interesting to hear the Snowy Hydro CEO um, in the front in Senate's estimates this week, sort of talking about the problems. They spent $100 million looking at the hydrology or looking at the, um, you know, sort of doing soil studies and, earth stu and, and, and studies into um, uh, the geology um, before they started tunneling, but it doesn't seem to have helped them very much because um, they all seem very surprised that um, Florence is stuck and will probably remain stuck for a little while to come. So um, it's going to be interesting to see at the end of July what the final cost assessment is. Um, I don't know whether it's going to get to the stage where people sort of say, well, is it worth continuing? Um, but um, I guess um, it might come to that point, but um, I suspect that they're going to plough ahead anyway. I kind of think we could still do so much more on behind the meter. The focus always is uh, at the political level on big projects uh, because they make political news. But there's so much that can be done at the micro level. I keep emphasising we have the world's best behind the meter installation system for solar. The home battery system is all sitting there waiting to go. And if I compare subsidies for pumped hydro versus uh, subsidies for home batteries, uh, honestly, which one will get a result quicker? I know which one I'd be betting on. I don't know what you think, I, Christian. I think that goes to that that point I was talking to before about you know the need for a portfolio approach to, to storage. There's no one single answer. Um, and yeah, look, absolutely, David, to, to your point about behind the meter storage playing a key role, couldn't agree more. I think that we also need to think about the roles that storage can play sort of in the, 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 the low to medium voltage um, parts of the distribution network, the sort of so-called community batteries. So, um, you know, the, that storage at that level can play an enormous role. It's obviously not subject to to the same losses as as large scale, you know, large scale utility scale storage. Uh, it can help with voltage control. It can help sort of um, manage some of the implications of, of increased rooftop PV. It plays a huge role, and and it complements really nicely uh, all the other forms of large scale storage, you know, at the transmission level. So yeah, we just we, we need we need a mix of all of these storage solutions. That that's the only that that's that's the way that we're going to get the lowest cost, you know, sort of overall solution. Cool. Um, Christian, any final thoughts? Your um, The podcast is going to end in 90 seconds. Have you... Uh... <laughs> No, look, no, no, I think we've, we've, we've done, done most of my laundry list. Uh, I think uh, I really, really appreciate the opportunity to come and, uh, come and talk to you guys. Well, we really appreciate having you. Um, it's been a fantastic conversation um, and very informative and very lively. So um, really appreciate you coming on board. David, you've got any final thoughts? No, no more final thoughts. Thanks no very much, Christian. <laughs> okay, so thanks um, to David. Thanks to Christian Zer from the Clean Energy Council. Uh, thanks, of course, to our sponsors, Pylon and Evergen. Um, do check out our other podcast, the Solar Insiders podcast is back up and running and uh, we had a great interview with um, Andy McCarthy last week um, and another one coming up um, next week and in the Driven podcast uh, we had Tony Siever from Rethink X and Stanford University and followed by um, Atto Girl, her, the first woman to drive a BYD Atto 3 from Perth to Sydney and back again and fascinating interview about um, some of the, her observations and um, and uh, the charging network, etc. Anyway, we'll be back next week with another episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. So bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimizes residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant generating significant value for consumers, network operators, and the energy system as a whole. Evergen Software is powering the energy system of the future.
Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use, solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.